together to God's Word together. So if you've got a Bible with you, you might like to open it or turn it on or whatever you do. And we're going to turn to 2 Corinthians together and chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. While you're looking it up, I just want to give you a quick bit of, of context because this is quite a difficult chapter actually, quite a different, uh, difficult and a painful moment. I don't know if you've ever had to write a really awkward letter or a really awkward email or a really awkward message and it's kind of hard to find the right words and then as you do it, this, this passion just starts to, to flow out of you. Uh, well, we see something of that when Paul writes to a church in, in Corinth, uh, a place I got to visit last summer. It's a f- fantastic place you ever get to go. Uh, there's ancient Corinth, and you can walk the streets. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, and Paul went there to plant a church there. It was kind of a center for new ideas and innovation, kind of a startup place. If you wanted to make it in the ancient world, you went to Corinth. And so Paul goes there to plant a church of all places, all this kind of ridiculous religious sort of ceremony as well and spiritual ideas and odd practices. And right there in the middle of it all is this bloke called Paul. And uh, as you enter the city, you kind of go through, you went through these gates and he would sit by the city and he kind of funded his mission by tent making. And as he was trying to sell tents or fix somebody's tent he was visiting or staying in the city, he'd share something of Jesus. And a church is born in Corinth. Eventually, then, Paul moves on to another place to try and plant another church. And he hears that something has happened in Corinth. A whole bunch of people who don't really believe the message have nevertheless come and set themselves up as apostles. Uh, He kind of calls them, in a few passages here, super apostles. Now, in the Greek, there's no sort of air quotes, but that's what he's sort of saying. They're telling these fantastic stories of spiritual experiences and kind of spiritual credentials and in doing so they're undermining the truth of the gospel which was never about making money which was never about being famous or popular and in order to keep their popularity they're watering down the message and trying to make it easier and uh, changing it in places and Paul is, is so hurt by this and you hear something of that as he writes to this church how heartbroken he is that this church that he spent years planting have gone off the rails with, with these other people who are kind of coming in for financial gain and kind of watering down the gospel. And so that's the background to these words in Second Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to pick it up at verse 16. He's kind of defending himself, really. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves or exploits you, or takes advantage of you, or puts puts on airs, or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak to do that. For anyone else who dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I'm more. I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. 
I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I've received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Been beaten with an inch of his life. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked and spent a day and night in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled. I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've gone without food. I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I don't feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor and the king Aratas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through their hands. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one will think of me more than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. Father God, as we read these words today, we recognize all of us have a way to go in recognizing, God, the way of your kingdom and the work of your spirit. And so as we come to you today, God, help us not to play act or perform, but to bring you our weaknesses, to bring you ourselves and to welcome your grace, your power, your mercy afresh. 
So, Lord Jesus, we want to offer you this time and simply pray that you would use it, God, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If I can, I want to take you back to Christmas Day uh, a number of years ago. Uh, we used to back uh, then uh, meet here as a, we, we still do this bit, we meet here as a, as a church on, on Christmas Day, uh, but we used to then hit the road and go and see uh, family back in West Wales. Uh, Amy's mum and dad still lived down there, my mum and dad lived down there a while, uh, and uh, so we'd uh, finish the service here, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, hit the road quickly, as quickly as we could. Uh, and this one year we were going down to Amy's mum and dad's, uh, and we suddenly realised uh, partway into the journey, that someone had forgotten to put petrol in the car uh, the day before. Now, I don't think this is the time or the place to talk about who, uh, whose job it was to fill up with car. I don't think the, 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 the time will ever come when it's right to, to work out whose fault it was. But we suddenly panicked that we didn't have enough petrol for the journey. Of course, Christmas Day, where is going to be open to, to fill up with, with petrol? Uh, and so we were driving along together and I, th I think we were just joyfully praying about the opportunity to learn patience and, uh, and grace, something like that, something like that was happening. And eventually, we managed to find somewhere. We were so grateful uh, to fill up with petrol. I think that's the most grateful I've ever been to somebody that was working uh, on, on Christmas Day. But for me, it was a picture for us, and perhaps it's a picture for some of us today, of that awful feeling that we get in life sometimes. Will I have enough? For the journey that lies before me, will I have enough? For some of us, that'll be a, a very real, ongoing, practical thing. The money that comes in at the start of each month, will it be enough to carry me through? The time that I work and the energy and the focus that I give to my work, is it enough? Maybe some of us, as we've got older, have had that horrible experience of seeing other people come and join the company and bringing something new, a new area of expertise or training, and suddenly feeling a bit obsolete. Does my knowledge, does my skills mean anything in this new world? Am I enough? Maybe for some of us, there's a relationship with someone in our lives, and we're constantly wondering, am I, am I enough? Am I attractive enough? Am I funny enough? Am I clever enough? Am I around enough? Maybe for some of us today, that relationship is with God, and we've wondered, God, have I got enough? I've got a passion to live for you, and yet in certain circumstances, that seems to run dry. It seems to run out. I've got a passion to change and lay behind me things that have been part of my life, habits and feelings and thoughts, but I haven't got enough. It's, it's dragging me back there. There's a gravitational pull to something that's got a grip. And God, can you keep forgiving me after all this time? Can I forgive myself after all this time? Will I have enough? Do I have enough? We hear something of that, don't we, in, in Paul as he writes to this church. He compares himself to these super apostles, these false apostles that swept in and are sweeping up his church and his people with all kinds of weird doctrines and just draining the church dry of financial resources. Was what I did enough? Were my gifts enough? Was my teaching enough? Was my pastor's heart, was, was it enough? Was it enough for you? And then he goes on to try and explain himself and 
explain his own journey. And I love what he does here as he looks at these super apostles with their list of credentials and impressive experiences. And he says, you don't want to know what an apostle's like. Paul clearly does not have any training in job adverts because he tells them exactly what being apostle has, has meant for him. Time and time and time again, struggle, heartbreak, difficulty, fear, sleeplessness, physical anguish. He said, I've done that for Jesus. I'm glad to do that for Jesus. But if you want to know, then this is me. This is, this is what it's like. And he says, actually, if you want to talk about spiritual experiences, I've, I've known times of intense revelation, so much so that, that God wanted to do something in my life. Because of the experiences I've had, God wanted to keep me humble. Maybe this is because Paul knows in his past there's been this huge sense of arrogance, this huge sense of pride, this huge knowledge of I'm right and the rest of the world is wrong, and God doesn't want that for the new Paul, doesn't want that part of Paul's ministry or Paul's life. And so there's this thing that happens. Paul says, I've been given a thorn in my flesh. Now, that's a phrase that we sometimes use, don't we? And kind of sometimes today can be used to mean these sort of minor irritations. You know, if you, if you want to pick roses, you've got to be aware there's some thorns. But I don't think that's how Paul means it here. The, the word in the original Greek actually doesn't describe those kind of nice little tiny thorns that you might see uh, on a bush or on a rose, but big, thick thorns actually can be used sometimes for the spikes on which people were impaled. Paul says, there's something in me that I wish wasn't there. He calls it here a messenger of Satan. The Lord has allowed something to torment him. That's the language he's using here. Again, in the original language, the word torment means to buffet. So something keeps hitting him, knocking him off course, keeping him from the place he wants to be. He says, three times I've pleaded with the Lord to take it away. Now, I don't think that he means literally three. I think he's talking here about the perfect number. I couldn't have prayed any harder. I couldn't have prayed any longer. couldn't have prayed any better. God, take this away, take it away, take it away. So Paul sees two options. Either the Lord will allow it to remain in his life and that will hinder him and kind of handicap his ministry and his life, or the Lord will take it away and he can get on with everything that he's called to do. But God sees another way. He says, Paul, I'm, I'm going to leave the thorn, but I'm going to give you grace. And I love these words that come, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed, but he said to me. Sometimes we fill our prayers with so much words, don't we? So much noise. And we just need to leave space for him to speak. But he said, but he said to me, my grace, Paul, is sufficient. I know you think you haven't got enough. I know you think that you're not enough. I know you think this will end you. But Paul, my grace is enough for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. You might think of it, Paul, as a, an oppression and, and as an opposition, but actually it's an opportunity. Paul, you're going to discover something about the depth of my grace, about the, the extent of my power in weakness that you cannot learn in strength. 
My grace is sufficient for you. I'll be honest, this wasn't the passage I was going to speak on this morning. I was going to look at um, a different one, Acts 27, where Paul is shipwrecked. and That led me on to this passage, and I just couldn't get away from this phrase. And maybe God just wants to say to someone here today, my grace is sufficient for you. To imagine that you've outrun it or exhausted it would be like to take a tiny cup to Niagara Falls and have a drink and then imagine that Niagara Falls is empty. My grace is sufficient. There's a type of grace, isn't there, that we receive from the Lord when we come to him needing forgiveness of sins. That's saving grace. God, I need you to forgive me, and I, I, I can't claim any merit or anything for that. It's just gonna, if you're going to forgive me, it's going to have to be a free gift. That's grace. God forgives us because he's a God of grace. He's an all-gracious God. And whoever you are today, whatever you've done, whatever your past is, even your present today, if you're carrying something that would horrify you for everyone else to know, I want you to know that God's grace is enough. There is nothing that he cannot redeem, nothing that he cannot ransom. No matter what we tell ourselves or what other people tell us or what we feel, everyone, these, these, these words are true, everyone's welcome because his grace is enough. But there's another kind of grace that is being described here, a grace that will come when you're empty, a grace that will come when you're afraid, a grace that will come when you're depleted. And he wants Paul to know that grace will be enough. Enough to know that you're loved. Enough to know that you're known. Enough to know that you're held. Enough to know that you are not abandoned. That you are not deserted. That you're not forsaken. My grace, Paul. It's enough. It reminded me of a, um, a story I heard a while ago uh, about a, an American a doctor, a Dr. Kyle Sheets, and uh, he had a real passion to serve and to um, serve in other places around the world, and so he founded something called Physicians Aiding Physicians Abroad, uh, or PAPA for short, and kind of spoke to a whole bunch of his colleagues and said, what would it be like if we could take some of our expertise and training and equipment and all that kind of stuff to places around the world where there are great doctors and teams, but they don't have the privilege of the resources and the experience that we've got. Uh, and so all around the world right now, there's a couple of hundred doctors that are doing this free of charge in their own time. And this guy founded it all and came up with the idea. His uh, daughter, Heather, also became a doctor and is also part of this. And at one point, they were out in Zimbabwe uh, treating AIDS patients. And one night, they were sat having uh, dinner together and she said to her dad, what's that cut on your hand? And he said, oh, I, I thought you would see that. It's um, a cut I received during surgery. And of course, her heart sank about the potential damage, and et cetera, et cetera. And so she begged him to take the antiretroviral drugs that, that were needed. Um, but he knew the uh, side effects of those. All of them were, were life-threatening. She wasn't keen on doing that, but she eventually persuaded him to. Uh, and was incredibly ill, was incredibly sick for the next 10 days. He deteriorated every single day. Uh, and they were due to go home uh, on this one flight, but they, they brought it forward. Uh, and 
this whole time they were, they were um, queuing to get on the plane, she kept on telling people, I'm a doctor, and so you can let us on, because he was just shivering with fever, and, uh, in a terrible, terrible state. So they let them on the plane, the plane takes off, and she says for the first part of the flight, all she was doing was trying to imagine scenarios and work out how will I be able to drag him into the aisle and do CPR on him if I need to. It was something like a 40-hour journey with a, a layover, and so she was really worried about this, this whole thing. Uh, eventually, her dad, Kyle, falls asleep, and she goes to the bathroom and starts to pray and ends up in what she describes as a fetal position on the floor, just crying, exhausted, worried, and, and praying, God, I need some help. I just need some help. God, I just need some help. I'm sure you've prayed those kind of prayers. I don't know what, God, but God, I just need something. I just need some help. She says she doesn't know how long she was in there, but eventually someone knocked on the door. When she opened the door, there were four people waiting to use it. So she said, I'm so sorry. She said, uh, they asked if she was okay. She said, yes, no, I'm fine. I'm a doctor. And this guy said, oh, wow, uh, I'm a doctor. In fact, we're all, the four of us are, are doctors. And it turns out there was a team of 100 doctors that had been on a um, conference in Mexico that were uh, flying home. Kyle, already later, wrote about this, talks about the fact that he's been on about five flights where somebody's asked the question, is there a doctor on the plane? And his has been the only hand that went up. And he said, that day, boarding that plane, I was wondering, will there be anyone to help us? And he said, God literally answered my prayer 100-fold. And they were able to watch him and care for him so that she could sleep. And he eventually recovered from the rash that, was, uh, that infected him. And we have a God who answers our prayers 100-fold. His grace is enough. Sometimes as we pray, we, we imagine that there's a sort of a quota, don't we? And uh, God, I've sort of had my miracle, so I won't ask for that again, but is there something you could give me? Is there something you could do? Sometimes we have such a small vision of who God is, don't we? We have a God who answers our prayers a hundredfold. His grace, he tells us, is enough. One of the most famous hymns of all time, certainly one of the most popular, is a hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, some of us, as we hear those, might think of the word wretch and think, gosh, that's a strong word to use, especially in our very uh, sort of culture today where we don't you know, describe ourselves in anything other than positive language. But why would you call yourself a wretch? Well, John Newton knew the power of grace. If you know anything about his story, he'd lived an awful life. He had grown up in a family where his father was a sailor, and he'd also become a sailor and eventually went on to be a captain of a slave ship that was trafficking people. Uh, and he was known for brutal treatment of the slaves, for foul language and all kinds of awful behavior. And he's the one who writes the words, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And another part of his story, he is reunited with uh, somebody that he grew up with, a girl called Mary. And he recognizes that there's this love between them. And the two of them fall in love and start to, to grow together. And uh, after she dies, he publishes something called Letters to My Wife. Uh, and there's just this overflow of, of love. And the way that she was able to support him and 
care for him and help him, just blessed him in ways that were beyond words, beyond, beyond measure. And he writes about a time just after she died when he wondered, will I be able to carry on without her? He says that when she died, it was like the world died with her. That's how he felt. There was some services coming up that he was due to preach at, uh, and then a, a mission that he was due to lead, and he thought, I, I just don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I'll have the words or the energy that I need. And he was praying about that. And he ended up writing these words. The Bank of England is too poor to compensate for such a loss as mine. True, isn't it, that money cannot medicate? Stuff won't do. But the Lord, the all-sufficient God, speaks and it is done. John Newton knew an all-sufficient God. Let those who know and trust him be of good courage. He can give them strength according to their day. He can increase their strength as their trials increase. And what he can do, he has promised that he will do. My power, God says, is made perfect in weakness. It's available, of course, in every season of life. But if you really want to see it work, it'll be when you're at your lowest, at your most broken, and my power will be made perfect. Sometimes we, we struggle, don't we, to come to terms with, with what that means because we're so used to being in charge. We're so used to being in control. And to live by grace means to let go of the steering wheel. It means to, to fall off the ladder of importance and status and success and control. But when we fall off, there are arms of grace that are waiting to catch us. I wonder if for some of us today, there's been a battle, a struggle. God, is that grace? that I see others talk about, I hear others sing about, is it enough, though, for me? I love these words that, that John writes to the church. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. And sometimes it'll be that battle, won't it, between what I feel is true of me and what God has said is true of me. That sort of age-old battle between feelings and facts. And feelings are great. We thank God for them, but we don't depend on them. And feelings kind of go up and down, don't they? If you want to ride that wave, you can, but you should know it's going to be a rocky ride. Passion will come and go. Sometimes we rest our security, don't we, on what other people say about us and what other people feel about us, and that's a rocky ride as well. Sometimes we spend so long trying to defend ourselves or, or protect ourselves when God says to us, my grace is sufficient for you. Yes, there will always be people who will not believe that you've changed will not believe that you've grown, will not believe that you're standing in a new place now, but my grace is sufficient. And if you want to see my power at work, it's made perfect in weakness. For Paul, that was the thing that qualified him to carry on serving God. I wanted to get together today, if we can pray together, 
Uh, and maybe for some of us, there has been that sense of a thorn, uh, a spikiness, uh, a sharpness uh, inside of us. And maybe some of us today can name that. It's been an experience. It's been a struggle. Maybe it's been a, a period of success or whatever it is. I wonder how you would name that today. Perhaps for other of us today, there have been those prayers that have been like a stuck record in our lives. God, I need your help. God, take it away, take it away, take it away. And the longer you've gone on in that period, the harder it's been to keep going, to keep trusting, to keep hoping, to keep giving, to keep loving. Sometimes, for all of us here today, when we don't hear what we want to hear, it sounds like heaven is saying nothing, and there's nothing more painful than silence when we're waiting for an answer. And so, God, I pray for everyone today that this might be the day when you speak. Lord, what we need most is to hear from you. What we need most is to know what you're doing and then to surrender to the grace that is enough to the power that is made perfect in weakness. So Lord, today we want to stop pretending to be strong. We want to stop pretending that we know it all, have it all. so that underneath that armor, there might be room for you to pour grace today. For when we are weak, then we are strong. Lord, forgive us for those times when we've soldiered on so hard, so far, so long in our own strength. We're simply not leaning into you anymore. When if we're completely honest, we've, we've forgotten you in so many places and so many ways. So in Jesus' name, I pray right now, would you lavish your grace? And I know I can ask that, God, because your grace is enough. Would you lavish your grace in Jesus' name? Would you pour your power afresh in Jesus' name?